Uh, tonight, I want to look at this text, this text here, in, uh, primarily the verses in Acts chapter 13, uh, because I find it to be one of the most interesting texts, at least one of the more interesting ones, I should say, out of the book of Acts. Um, and this sermon might strike you as a bit different, one that I have actually put a lot of <laughs> labor, I, I, I labor over almost every sermon that I prepare, but this one was especially uh, laborious because uh, I wanted to uh, speak to something that I think is incredibly pertinent to where we are as a nation. And I have never been, and I never plan to be, a, quote, headline preacher. I'm not, that's not who I am. I don't look at the headlines and figure out what type of sermon text I can preach out of the headlines. That's not what I do, um, and I never will be. Um, because, well, primarily because I have a much bigger job, I think, than that. Uh, my job is not to look at the headlines and help you figure out what those mean is to preach the word of God, which is what uh, Paul tells to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word in season and out of season. That's where I kind of derive my uh, main goals whenever I step behind any sort of lectern or pulpit. But be that as it may, um, I have felt this past week a very strong and sudden sort of urge not to comment on the news and the latest things that are going on, because that's its own separate conversation, but to proclaim the truth of the Word of God as it, I think, meets us in these moments. And that's the wonder of the Scriptures. I've said this in a, a couple of different occasions, uh, like Sunday school and different places like that, that it, it is amazing that you can always open this Word and it is never irrelevant. It will always have something to tell you or say to you right where you are, right when you are. Think about uh, all the things that David went through in the Psalms. And think about how uh, incredibly pertinent that those are for moments that we endure. Seasons of heartache and grief and loss. Right when we are, 2,000 odd years later, it is exactly how King David was feeling all those many uh, centuries, millennia then. And that's what I want to look at here from in an odd sort of way, because tonight's text in these first couple of verses of Acts chapter 13, it doesn't really feel like there's anything relevant for us. It actually just looks like it's a listing of names. It's just an unassuming passage, a listing of the early church leaders here at the church of Antioch. And it's just kind of telling us who's there and what they're about to do. This is a really actually big moment in the life of the early church as, as Paul and Barnabas are being prayed over and sent out by the church on their very first missionary journey. But where there's the gospel in that story, we could say. But where's the gospel in these three verses? If you're just looking at the first three verses of Acts chapter 13, where's the gospel? Well, I want to look at that tonight because actually I think the gospel is actually just found by looking at who's in this room together. If you just look at the names that are here listed for us, and look at, as it says there, look at verse 2 again. Uh, they are ministering to the Lord. They are praying and fasting with each other. And you look at this uh, register of names, so to speak, and it consists of Barnabas, Barnabas Simeon, Menaean, Lucius, and Saul, who we know as Paul. 
These were the very first sort of set of leaders at the church of Antioch. The sort of new center hub of operations for the early church. It had been in Jerusalem and here now you'll see this kind of shift. The shift in the narrative, especially in Acts, it'll shift from Jerusalem. The center of everything will kind of revolve around Antioch. Uh, as we, uh, you can read that, I think it's in chapter 11, verse 26, where it talks about how the very first Christians were called Christians at Antioch. Here, the center hub of the church is kind of largely shifting to this location. And actually, being, far from being just a record of names... Just a catalog of who was here at this moment, at this church service, so to speak. Actually, the remarkable thing, I think, is that this listing of names is actually a gospel sermon in and of itself. Especially when you consider that these prophets and teachers, when you consider their lives... Consider where they came from, and who they are, and where they are now... Because these five guys that are in this room together, worshiping together, is actually all the gospel that we would ever need, I think. I just want to look at each of these characters, sort of do a character study of each of these guys, quickly, briefly. And then I hope to sort of bring it all home, so we'll see if, the, uh, see if that happens. So the first guy I want to look at is the first one that's mentioned, Barnabas. Barnabas is a fascinating figure. We first meet him, go with me to Acts chapter 4. We first meet Barnabas here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 36. This is where he's first mentioned. And look at what happens. It says, And Joseph, or Joseph, which is also Barnabas' name. So we could well just say it that way. And Barnabas, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it. And brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Our very first mention of the man that we know as Barnabas, or he's also really named Joseph. Here we find him having experienced a profound moving of the Holy Spirit. So profound, in fact, that his life has been reshaped by the preaching of the gospel. So much so that he's decided to sell land and give all of the proceeds to the apostles. To further their ministry. To further this advancement of the gospel here in the early days of the church. He has had this incredible moving of God on his life. And he is sacrificing all to him. To these apostles. It's an astounding scene that Barnabas here. Would devote himself and dedicate himself in this incredibly astounding way. And and we know it's true because Luke does something really interesting in in this recording of history. He contrasts Barnabas' offering with the very next story. If you go to chapter 5, the first 11 verses, what do we have? The story of Ananias and Sapphira. So you have right away this contrast which is definitely on purpose. So you can know that Barnabas, his offering is genuine. And you want to see a a non-genuine, a disingenuous offering? Here is Ananias and Sapphira. He's contrasting to show you how the Spirit moves. And how the Spirit really does move. Because Barnabas gives everything. And remember Ananias and Sapphira. They say that they've given everything but they've held stuff back for themselves. They've given out of pretense. They want people to think that they've given everything when in fact they haven't. And so you see 
Barnabas isn't like Ananias and Sapphira. He is devoted, definitely on purpose. Not, he's not driven by gain or greed, or he's not driven by appearing to look more righteous. He is driven only by faith. He's saying here, I have felt this moving of the Holy Spirit. I am faithfully giving all that I can and all that I have to you to further this good news. And this is the first mention of him in the scriptures. And I love that the first mention also includes this sort of nickname that he's been given by the apostles. His real name is Joseph, and he's been renamed Barnabas, which, as it says there, means son of encouragement. He has felt such a profound moving of the Holy Spirit that he is, his only reputation is known as being one who encourages. Who goes around encouraging his brethren. You know, of all the New Testament characters ever recorded in Scripture, Barnabas is the one I want to be known for. One who encourages. One who goes around and seeks to uplift others who are in the ministry. Who seeks to make sure that they are lifted up above myself. That's really what Barnabas spent his life doing. This early church leader was known as one who encourages others. I don't really think there's a much better reputation than that. But quickly, look at the next character back in our text in Acts 13. Because I want to make a point about that, but I want to get to this guy first. The last one who's mentioned, Saul. Saul is in this room with Barnabas. Worshiping, praying, ministering, serving the Lord here at this, in this church building, we might say, at Antioch. And Saul, of course, is a fascinating character. We know him as Paul. Fascinating guy. We first meet him. Go with me. Acts chapter 7. We're going to be going to a couple different places, so keep your Bibles handy. But I want you to see all of these things and how they lead to this moment in Acts 13. So, Acts 7. This, of course, is the scene. The scene of Stephen's murder. The first sort of martyr of the church, we might say. It's a a very big moment here in the early days of the church. Look at verse 58. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, that being Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul, the same young man, was consenting, was agreeing, was approving to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Here's our first introduction to Saul, which is almost a seemingly innocuous reference. It just seemingly just kind of passes by. They give these coats to this young man, and then it gives us a little more detail about this young man who proceeds, as it says, to make havoc of the church. He's wreaking all kinds of destruction 
on the early days of the church. And yet we know. We know we can turn to Acts chapter 9. That Saul is miraculously converted. God meets him, by the way, on the road to commit more treachery. He's on the road with papers in his hands to go about wreaking more persecution on the road to Damascus. And that's where God saves him. That's where God interjects himself into Paul's life and radically changes his life. We know this story. He repeats it three times in the book of Acts alone. We have it for us and not in chapter 9. He repeats it in chapter 22. He repeats it in chapter 26. He repeats a little bit of it too for us in Galatians, in, in the letter to the Galatians. He repeats it again in 1 Timothy a little bit. This is obviously something around which Timothy, or excuse me, Paul's life was centered. He went all back to that moment and saw it for what it was. An incredible moment of grace in his life where God rescued him out of committing more uh, treachery against the church. And you think about Paul's life. It's staggering to me that Paul would use that man, Paul... That God would use that man, Paul, as it says in chapter 17 of Acts, verse 6, to turn the world upside down. He uses Paul. Think about this. The man who not only witnessed the stoning of the church's first martyr, but approved of it, is the same man who would later be zealous for the church to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As he writes in 1 Corinthians. He would use the same man who was once, as it says in chapter 9, look at Acts 9 verse 1. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He would use that man who was once so seething with rage against the church, who was going about, as it said in chapter 8 verse 3, wreaking havoc on the church. God would use that same man to tenderly call for the church to be reconciled together by remembering how God reconciled them to himself. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it talks about what we have, where Paul is confessing what we have now as the church is what? A ministry of reconciliation. The same man. The same man who was taking people and dragging people out of their own homes and bringing them to prison and persecuting them. And yes, even having them executed only because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ is the same man who would later write the majority of your New Testament. It's the same man. And here, Paul He's in the room together. Go back to Acts chapter 13. He's in the room together with Barnabas. Think about that. Barnabas, a guy who was involved in the early days of the church. This is conjecture. I know it is. But I have to imagine that Barnabas knew some of the people that Paul persecuted. That he knew some of those ones that he took away and had executed. In the early days of this church, Barnabas knew some, all of the things that Saul did, Paul did. He knew it. Perhaps he knew it firsthand. And here they are. As it says, ministering to the Lord together. Could two men have more opposite backgrounds? 
Barnabas, as we've already seen, has done all that he can, sells all to build the church, whereas Saul has done all he can to destroy the church. This is, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll just turn there really quick. This is Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. Because this is, I want you to see Paul's own words about what he was doing to the church. Galatians 1, 13 says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He's confessing, this is what I was doing. I was trying to destroy the church, get rid of all these people that were aligned with Jesus. And here they are, in the same room together, worshiping Jesus. What a great picture of grace, is it not? What is a great picture of the moving of the Holy Spirit. But also, uh, go back. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but I want you to see this, because this is awesome. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Because immediately after uh, Paul's conversion, notice who comes to him. Look at verse 26 of uh, Acts chapter 9. It says, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Can you blame them? You can't blame them for being afraid of this guy. Look at what it says. And they did not believe that he was a disciple. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe that this guy who was once dragging people out of their homes and putting them to prison, it would be now somehow on the same side as them. You've, you've got to be kidding me. You, who brought you here? And look what happens. Look, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he, Barnabas, declared to them how Paul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Isn't that amazing? The one who stood up for Paul was none other than our good old friend Barnabas the encourager. You want an example of encouragement? How about bringing this one who was once wreaking havoc on the church and confirm him in front of the other leaders of the early church and say, no, this guy is for real. He has got it down. He's genuine in what has happened to him and in his life. Barnabas stood up for Paul. Barnabas encouraged Paul in the early days of his conversion, affirming that his salvation testimony was true. He's not lying. I think it's incredible that Barnabas would do this. Again, thinking, conjecture, yes, imagining that he likely knew some of those who Paul took away. And here he's defending Paul in front of the other leaders of the church. Later on, go with me to Acts chapter 11. Paul is still in Tarsus. And there's a moving of the Holy Spirit going on at the city that we know of as Antioch. A work that is so profound, in fact. A work that is so large that actually Barnabas seeks out Paul to reinforce this ministry. Look at verse 19 of chapter 11. 
Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and encouraged them all with Excuse me, and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So he's defending Paul in front of the other apostles. Now he's taking Paul with him to, this, to join and reinforce this great moving of the Holy Spirit. And they end up spending an entire year there. Assembling together at this church. Teaching, discipling, preaching. And here, all at this moment, they're leading the church together. Going back to our text in Acts 13. Here, they're being prayed over. Prayed over to be sent out and further this work even more, even beyond the reaches of what they had already been to. This is only possible because of of the gospel of God. This is only possible because of Jesus. You want to see the gospel at work? Look at Barnabas and Saul together in the same room being prayed over to go out and preach the gospel that they had both been so radically changed by. And here they are. There's no other way to uh, reconcile or unite these two men apart from Christ. It happens because of Christ. Look at the third guy. Back at our text. I want to look at the guy, Manan. There was prophets and teachers here of this church. And among them was this man named Manan who had been brought up with Herod. I think Manan was one of the most fascinating characters of the Bible. And in fact, he, but d- despite the fact that he is only mentioned here in this verse. This is his only mention in the entire Bible. Verse 1 of chapter 13 of Acts. And yet, despite that, I think he has one of the most revealing descriptions of anyone in the entire Bible too. Because it says that this is Manan who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And by the way, this isn't merely to suggest that he was just a childhood friend. He's, this is his sort of bosom buddy from, uh, from uh, early childhood. A close comrade, so to speak, that he grew up with. Actually, no, this is much more. The Greek word for brought up actually means to nourish or to nurse. And the idea is that Manan was actually raised with Herod as a part of the royal family. Oftentimes, uh, royal families, uh, in these days at least, would hire sort of a caregiver. Someone who would attend, almost like a nanny, a, a governess of the children to raise their children. And oftentimes they would have one who would have a child that could be raised with their son or daughter. 
a royal child, so to speak, would have someone with them, a, a, a friend, so to speak. And here, this one is Manan, a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod, uh, this is not the Herod from the Christmas story, that's his dad. Herod the Great there is the one who had had all of the children uh, two years of age and under murdered. And uh, the apple doesn't fall, fall that far from the tree as they say because this is Herod Antipas. Antipas is Herod the Great's son. And he comes from that wonderful line of wicked kings. Uh, some of the most vile people that you will ever read about in the scriptures are these Herods. If you want to know about Herod Antipas, you don't have to go very far. You can read about him throughout the Gospels. This is the Herod who married his brother's wife. And had a, had a daughter with, 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 him, with her. And this daughter proceeded to seduce him and convince him into executing John the Baptist and parading his head on a platter. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 14. This is that family. The same Herod Antipas, by the way, who played a role in Jesus Christ's death. If you remember the, the events of Christ's death, which we'll get into uh, on Sunday mornings pretty soon, you'll remember that Pontius Pilate actually finds out that Jesus is from Bethlehem. And he is reminded, oh, I can just wash my hands of this guy. I can send him off to Herod Antipas and he'll find out something to do with him. He, he owns jurisdiction over him. So Pontius Pilate sends Jesus to Herod Antipas for uh, further trial. And Herod Antipas is excited. If you read about this in, uh, in Luke chapter 23, you read about the fact that uh, Herod is actually excited about uh, meeting Jesus because he thinks that Jesus is some sort of magician or sorcerer. If you remember from our study in Mark, remember in Mark chapter 6, where Herod Antipas actually thinks that this guy who is causing such a stir, such a ruckus, this Jesus is actually John the Baptist reincarnated? He thinks that this is this magician, he's going to come give us some sort of show. And he's really disappointed, in fact, when, when that doesn't happen at all. Jesus actually doesn't say anything. And he gets mad and he sends him back to Pontius Pilate. All that to say that this is that Herod. This is that Herod that, as it says here, that Manan was brought up with, was friends with, was close to his entire life, was none other than Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, part of the most wicked family in all of human history. Again, can you imagine a more dissimilar uh, trajectory in life than Herod and Manan? Herod, part of the wicked family line of Herods, and Manan here, who is at Antioch serving the church. <laughs> Herod, who is a part of this early inner circle of church leaders, who is seeking out uh, by faith, by prayer, by fasting, how the Lord might move in their time. Manan. From playing in the courts of the world's most wicked royal family to praying and fasting as these first missionaries are sent. This to me is just a remarkable picture of God's grace in this man's life. And God's grace in action in Manan's life. Changing him, radically bringing him from the depths of his upbringing to now here serving the church. But look lastly, look at these last two guys. So we have here, look at verse thir chapter 13, verse 1. 
Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene. These last two guys, they're also only mentioned here. Simeon is not the Simeon that you're often thinking about. This is his only mention. Simeon was a common name during these times. These two guys are really interesting to me. Because, notice that Luke here, Dr. Luke, is providing descriptions for each of these guys a little bit. And notice that all of the other ones, all of the other descriptions of all the other characters here in this room, are, they don't give any indication to their ancestry or their ethnicity. Except for Simeon and Lucius. He actually pinpoints their ethnicity and their ancestry by describing them as being Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene. Simeon, surnamed there Niger, is actually a Latin word meaning black. And the indication is that he is from northern Africa, being very uh, dark-skinned, brown or black-skinned. This is Simeon. Lucius is, as it says there, is from Cyrene, which is modern-day, a city in modern-day Libya in northern Africa. And the implication is, of course, that he is also uh, black or brown-skinned. Here in this room, with uh, other figures... So I want you to step back and look at who is in this room together. Look at who is in this room, as it says, ministering to the Lord together. You have two men from Africa, dark-skinned, Lucius and Simeon. You have Barnabas, a Hellenistic Jew who is favorable to to Greek knowledge and, and culture. You have Paul, formerly Saul, a Hebraic Jew. A converted Pharisee, a converted persecutor of the church. He's in this room. And you have Menaean, a Palestinian Greek who was raised with the royal family, who has already dealt so much death and destruction on these early days of the church. Can you think of a more diverse gathering of church people than this? There's, it's covering almost every spectrum of the early known world at this time. From all corners, from all different backgrounds. In any other setting other than the church, you would look around at these people and like, who invited you? Who invited you to be here with me? And yet here they are. And what are they doing? They're ministering. They're praying. They're serving the Lord. They're fasting. Their hearts are in line and in tune with one another in the moving of the Holy Spirit. They all come to the same conclusion that the Lord wants his work to go out and go forward and move on and advance. And it's going to be Paul and Barnabas to do it. All of these backgrounds. This is the gospel on display. This is the gospel at work. Jesus Christ, when he said that he is going to make a kingdom of all nations, it's happening here in this little room at Antioch. It's happening right here with just these few church leaders. Because by all accounts, these guys should have hated one another. They should have had nothing to do with one another. Think of all the different nationalities and prejudices and biases and all these different things that are going on here just in this room that are surrounding them. All of the prejudices that are at a fever pitch at this point in society and culture here in this first century. They should have hated one another. And yet, 
They're ministering with and to one another. Because of the gospel. Because of Christ's work for them. And you want to know what's uniting them? You want to know what's bringing them together and keeping them close? You want to know what is uh, uniting these otherwise hostile brothers? You want to know what the enterprise is? The one mission and errand that they have chief in their mind? Look at verse 5. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God. This is what's uniting them. This is what is keeping them together. The word of God. Not a social cause. Not a a sort of a movement. Not any other thing. But what? The word of God. Which what? Relays to us Christ. Who makes us one. In him by his blood. This is what keeps us together from people that shouldn't be together. You want to know what brings us together? Christ and Him crucified. Christ, the one who shed His blood without prejudice, without bias, without partiality. In fact, this is everywhere within Paul's writings. Paul, this would form the, 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 the sort of the, the bulwark of Paul's writing, as he's writing in the New Testament, is what? That God's grace is unbiased and unprejudiced and impartial. And it doesn't matter what you have done or where you have come from. His grace can save and change your life. It can make you new as it makes you one. Notice. Look, I want to read you the, these verses. Look at Romans chapter 10. These verses are probably familiar with you. But to me they are so affecting and powerful. Romans is one of the most important books in your, in your New Testaments. And here Paul is writing to just what effect this gospel has. And look at what he says in Romans 10 verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know what what united these early guys? The word of God. Which contains the power of God to save sinners from their sins. Notwithstanding, disregarding any sort of background that you have. Or any type of bloodline that you are born with. The only thing that matters is faith in the God who is, as it says there, is rich to all who call on him. This is what is mattering to Paul. This is what is mattering to those men in the early days of Antioch. That the faith that justifies is disinterested in ethnicity and ancestry and paternity, where you came from, how you grew up. The faith that justifies is faith that justifies one and all because Jesus is the Savior of all. He's the Savior of everyone, as it says there, who believes. Look at Look at Galatians chapter 3. I'll just read you these verses. Galatians 3 verse 26 says this. For you are all sons of God 
Through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. You want to talk about a radical change of how to think about the scriptures? This right here is remarkable that Paul would say this in the early days of the church. When Jewish national pride was at almost an all-time high. He's saying that, yeah, you Gentiles, you can be brought into Abraham's seed too. How? By faith in Christ You can be made part of the family of God, uh, partakers of the promise. How? By faith in Christ. This is the word that Paul, I would rightly say, is possessed with. It's just, it's filling his blood, it's filling his veins, and it's spilling out of his mouth. He can't even write enough about it, that this faith makes all of us one in the family of God. All because of Jesus, who, yes, came as Israel's king, but he died as the world's savior. He came fulfilling all the promises, and he died saving, or making possible, I should say, the salvation of everyone who calls on him, everyone who believes. He made that possible. By his blood spilling on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem. Jesus made that possible. And this is what is, is uh, so, uh, so remarkable about that scene. Is that what is uniting them? That word of God. The gospel of Christ Jesus. Which announces to sinners that they can be reconciled to God. Which in turn can allow us to be reconciled to one another. Let me read you these verses. You can turn there if you want. This is from Ephesians. It's a longer paragraph, but it's so remarkable to me. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the same time that you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel... And strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. And to those who are near. For through him we have. We both have access. By one spirit to the father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners. But fellow citizens. With the saints. And members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation. Of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ. Himself being the chief cornerstone. 
and whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. I love Paul. You who were afar off, you who had nothing to do with Christ, you have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. Which what? Reconciles all to who? God. You are reconciled by one thing. The blood of God, which is proclaimed and propagated and prophesied and preached everywhere in what? The word of God. This is what was most important to Paul. This was Paul's lifeblood. This was the church's lifeblood at Antioch. They wanted nothing to be known about them except what? That they wanted to preach the word. The word of Christ. Resurrected from the dead. You can read Acts. I love Acts, by the way, because almost every sermon is, is, is that you read about in Acts is dealing with what? That, that this Jesus guy, that he is real, that he really resurrected, and that he is the one that has been promised for so long. How the apostles preached is largely what we still preach to this day. And what were they preaching? The word of God, which promises the salvation of God. That is nothing, uh, that is only possible by the power of God for sinners. This is what was uniting them. This is the message that I think that we need right now. Nothing but the blood, as that hymn says. Washes as white as snow. Redeems us, rescues us, reconciles us to one another. In this little room in Antioch, almost two millennia ago, we are given one of the grandest gospel sermons, only by men standing there ministering to the Lord with one another. And the sermon is this, that regardless of your background or your bloodline, God's power to save is far bigger than you can ever imagine. He can bring from the depths of the deepest darkness his brightest lights. He's done that in that room. He, can, he does that even now. He's still doing that. So I imagine that, that if they were to ask each other, if these men were to ask each other, who invited you? And you know what they'd say? Jesus. Jesus invited me to this room. He invited me by his blood. And now here we are. Going out to tell others about that blood. May that be what we are known for. May that be our reputation. May that be our only hope. Let us pray.